You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. We can use tech to build a stronger democracy and a fair economy. Really? Join me, Baratunde Thurston, on September 23rd and 24th for Unfinished Live, a convening of technologists, journalists, artists, and changemakers. You'll hear from Ethereum co-founder Gavin Wood, Glitch CEO Anil Dash, journalist Casey Newton and Anne Helen Peterson, and more. Go to live.unfinished.com for tickets and use the promo code LIVEAUDIO. At T-Mobile for Business, unconventional thinking means we see things differently so you can focus on what matters most. That's why we've become the leader in 5G, number one in customer satisfaction, and a partner who includes 5G in every plan. So you get it all. Unconventional thinking is better for business. Open Signal awards T-Mobile as America's fastest 5G network USA. 5G user experience report July 2021. Capable device acquired. Coverage not available in some areas. Some users may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. For J.D. Power 2020 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we will be discussing trends in threat intelligence and the implications for how organizations should be evolving their security strategies. I'm joined by Sandra Joyce, who is the head of Mandiant Threat Intelligence at cybersecurity firm FireEye. She is a U.S. Air Force officer and faculty member of the National Intelligence University with more than two decades of experience spanning national security and the private sector. Sandra holds four master's degrees in cyber policy, international affairs, science and technology intelligence, and military operational art and science. She is currently working on her MBA. I think it's probably fair to say this background gives Sandra an impressive and unique perspective on a range of topics that we cover on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for being here. And I want to start with something that's dominating and will continue to dominate the news as we record in late October. And it's going to be a fever pitch when we release this episode the first week in November. But let's talk a little bit about election security. Particularly, I want to talk about misinformation about election security, because that's been top of mind for many of us the last few months. And Sandra, as we speak, we're less than two weeks away from what in many ways feels like one of the most significant presidential elections that many of us have experienced in the United States. We know that even now, some foreign actors continue with their efforts to influence our elections. This week alone, we've seen releases from the U.S. government related to Iran and Russia. And while we don't know right now, and we won't know until the end, what the outcome will be, I think there are definitely some lessons from the 2016 presidential election and even the U.S. 2018 midterms that are worth revisiting in our conversation because they are still very relevant. So from your perspective, what are the most pressing vulnerabilities we are facing in this final stretch? And what can individuals and organizations be looking out for or even guard against immediately before and after the election. Well, and you, you bring up misinformation. I think that's a great place to start. And if we zoom out, we have to remember that for many countries like Russia and China and others, 
speaking about their uh, their long game plans, their strategic plans that go five, 10, 20, even 100 years out. When we look at that, we need to understand that information is an instrument of national power. And elections are going to be a small part of the overall strategy to gain um, a foothold to understand the intentions of countries. And misinformation during elections looks something like this. It is trying to uh, influence, it's trying to disrupt, it's trying to erode confidence in the democratic systems that we have. What we saw with the Proud Boys email and the video, really this was, if, if uh, you know, if people haven't uh, tuned into that, it was a, a purported to be email and, uh, and video from a right-wing group called the Proud Boys in which they actually didn't send this information. It was a voter intimidation um, video or, or email accompanied by a video supposedly showing that it was so easy to hack into all of these voter registration databases and take over um, mail-in ballots. Uh, and, you know, our head of analysis made the comment that scholars are going to be debating for years why they picked Metallica's Enter Sandman in the background to, to play during this to kind of, you know, bring up the cool factor. But really what this was is leveraging our own media, our own social media, our own values, right, of free press, and then trying to undermine then our confidence in the entire election system itself. Yeah, so Sandra, I, I want to pull the thread on that one a little, and I want to talk just for a second um, here about attribution because I'll tell you, when I first saw the the press conference, I, I you know, amongst a lot of cybersecurity professionals, was was a little skeptical. I was like, wow, it usually takes us months or years to actually do attribution, and rarely does everyone agree on attribution. Yet this happened in 24 hours. And amongst the skepticism in the industry, once we learned more details that they the hackers had made a mistake, right? These bad actors had made a mistake. They had le actually left exposed an IP address that we knew had been related to Iranian hacking activity previously. But can you just talk a little bit about um, how you think about attribution and how your intelligence organization thinks about attribution? Well, you know, often with us, attribution doesn't happen overnight. So for when we look at a threat actor, we usually have been tracking them for a pretty long time. And it goes through a, a process of, for example, we'll, we'll first see them as clusters of activity. And then um, over time, as more information is collected about their, uh, their techniques, about their infrastructure, about their C2, about whatever other elements that we're looking at, then those things um, actually start to get clustered together in a more refined way. And over time, what we can do is then draw this sort of circle around activity. And ultimately, we can do that, that attribution um, over time. So for example, uh, FIN11, we've been tracking for several years before doing attribution on that. We tracked it as a group called Temp Warlock um, until we could get absolute attribution on it. Uh, so these things do take time. I think that um, unless you have exquisite collection, often you do have to rely on both technical indicators as well as the targeting information. What are they looking at? What are their aims? 
What are the consistent places that they're going? Who are they targeting? So you can tell a lot about ultimate intention and, um, and characteristics based on the types of people and organizations that they're going after, what they're stealing, and what they're ultimately trying to do. It's so interesting because I had a conversation, and it's it's probably been a year or so ago with with a um, with an interview I did. I, I I'd be hard pressed to tell you who it was with right now, but they talked about attribution in terms of well, isn't it possible for false flags or for you know toolkits that are sold by the web on the web to be used? I said, of course it is, but to your point, the motives, who they're going after why they're going after them tells us a lot about attribution in combination with the tools we're using. And I think that's often left behind in that it's, you know, I, I put it in context of a police investigation to give people a little more context. It's not this like mystical black box when we do this in cybersecurity, right? You're looking at all different kinds of variables and those variables are the things that make up an investigation, not just one particular piece of evidence. That's right. And sometimes I think that people think of, well, it's very hard to do, but that doesn't mean it can't be done and it's not done well um, by, by people that have that visibility. The other part to think about is when we think about the concept of attribution and its value, from my perspective, the only ent entities that actually benefit from mudding the waters on attribution or saying it's not possible or casting doubt the, the entities that benefit the most with that kind of thinking are the threat actors themselves. They have a stake in not uh, being identified and the nation state sponsors that back them would like for nothing more than for us to uh, devalue attribution because without attribution, there's no accountability. And without accountability, we can't stop the actions that are taking place. That that's quite fair. So let's go back a little bit and talk about misinformation um, and the psychological aspects of this war that we're at. We're in right now. Um, in an NPR interview that you did last January, you shared an example of how a foreign group fabricated letters from concerned citizens to get published in local newspapers. Why was that significant? I think it's significant because these threat actors are using our own democratic values against us. And what I mean by that is that we have these sacred tenets of our society, this freedom of speech, and we intentionally um, you know, try and value everybody's opinion and don't, you know, and, and I would say that we not just that, uh, you know, we're not always very kind to each other or not always very open-minded with each other, but the right, the fundamental right to speak your mind is, is supposed to be a core value. So when those core values are actually used against us, meaning somebody from who is inauthentically representing themselves, so in this case, a, a, an information operator from, from Iran um, was impersonating a concerned U.S. citizen, they're really taking the fact that we have this open market at place of ideas that the that the press will will magnify, will distribute content. They're using all those things against us. And that's why I think it's significant, because our response is going to be really important. How are we going to respond? Um, we, we can't get back to a corner where we take away the rights to speak our mind, to have political opinions. But on the other hand, we need to be able to guard against foreign influence. Because foreign influence 
is is not just aimed at the target audience of, of people who are reading it. It's real aim is that bigger picture I was talking about in the beginning. It's to undermine the confidence that we have in the system that we've built. Which is exactly the point, right? The more that they can erode that, um, the better for them. And the more that they can erode, you know, attribution, confidence in the system, our own systems of record, things that we trust, like our democratic systems, then the easier it becomes for them long term, right? It's just something it's like making a layer cake. It just builds on itself. That's right. And and that's, you know, they know what makes us strong and what makes us strong is our democracy. Um, you know, this is this is the way that I think that we can um when we are, especially in an election period, uh, if we don't have confidence in our election system, if we don't have confidence that our elected leaders are actually reflective of the will of the people uh, or the, the will of the of the people and the processes in place, I think that that does have that sort of erosion that uh, over time. Well, let's move a little bit um, away from election security and just talk about threat intelligence in general. Um, and I know last year in the annual Mandiant M-Trends report, you predicted that 2020 would be the year for organizations to begin leveraging threat intelligence to better understand the risk and to prioritize their security efforts. Are you finding now that we're in late October that that has been the case? I think COVID absolutely ensured that people leverage intelligence, but I don't think that organizations call it intelligence. And what I mean by that is, I think that they're asking all the right questions now. Who is the threat actor that is most relevant to me? How can I defend myself proactively? What are the tactics, techniques, and procedures that I should be um, protecting against? And so while I think that um, you know we have been thrown the, the curveball of the century with COVID-19, I think that fundamentally people are now primed to understand that Threat intelligence is the sense making of the threat. And so without threat intelligence, you have either too many threats to look at that you don't know which ones are important or you're blind to them. Uh, so in that way, I would say that, you know, we we do think organizations are, are starting to ask the right questions, whether they use the term intelligence, uh, not so sure yet. <laughs> no, that that makes sense. And we we found that, too. We found that people really needed to leverage threat signals, right? We'll call it signals for now because they haven't sure. probably gotten to the maturity of intelligence. That's um, that's probably fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the 2020 M-Trends report also found that while security professionals are rooting out intruders on their systems quicker, hackers are actually getting better at disguising themselves with malware. What are the implications of that when it comes to protecting against you know future and emerging threats? Well, there, there are a lot of versions of this that we're seeing. So we're seeing, you know, whereas a group might have had signature malware in the past, we've seen them now lead with commodity malware uh, so that, you know, we we don't expect to see a, a APT actor when it's something that normally would be rooted out in prioritization because it's so it's not a fully featured, you know, backdoor or something like that. So there's there's sort of that bait and switch thing that's happening um, but also we're seeing that uh, threat actors are also using much, they're sort of pivoting towards less known, smaller malware families that are more likely to be overlooked. And so they're getting more nuanced and leveraging than these sort of newer techniques. And so when you have 
um, commodity malware uh, being being used to hide, let's say, more fully featured um, malware, and then you combine that with, but they're also then using much more nuanced, smaller malware families that are less well-known. I think that we're seeing, uh, it's gonna get harder and harder to detect in the noise. And that trend is going to make it hard for defenders who aren't um, already thinking about where their vulnerabilities are and what they should be focused on. Given that, what are some things organizations can do right now, knowing that these folks are obfuscating themselves better, knowing that they're getting better at being hidden and, and they're trying to increase time to detection whilst we're trying to lower it? What do you think organizations can do right, right now? Well, there are a couple of things that organizations can do. Uh, the first one is I always recommend that organizations do a threat profile on themselves. Um, and either they do it internally or they have somebody do it for them. But really take a look at what threats are, you know, where am I in this system of systems? You know, what unique um, technology or, um, you know, how am I a target? And then understanding that and then even looking at where, who has been targeting you and get get more specific on what threats are out there and then their TTPs and take it from there. So just trying to block and trying to detect every single thing that is coming um, is a way to do it. But if you can understand where you sit in the ecosystem, I think that you can prioritize more and you can at the very least get more efficient as you're looking through all of these things. The second thing I would recommend is some, you know, we really try to discourage the, uh, you know, that prevention only mindset where, you know, my metaphor for this has always been that if, you know, it's not so hard to rush the guards in a building, what is really hard is knowing exactly what room the information you want is in, the combination to the safe, and then getting, stealing it and getting out undetected. It's that lateral movement piece where we have seen the bulk of actual business disruption happening. There's, there is a time between the initial intrusion and when the most impactful activity happens, there is a moment there where you can find them in that lateral stage. And I think that that is where you need to have the, the technology behaviors and, um, and focus. So you've also mentioned that security is more than just about you know, preparing to be breached. It's about mitigating what bad actors can do once they are in, how much money, information, or technology they are actually able to extract from an organization. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, this is a lot of what I was just talking about in terms of not having that prevention-only mindset. So really understanding that, there, you know, we have tracked some threat actors who have lingered in organizations for up to two years. And what they do in this time is they're trying to understand the methods, the, the you know, they're, they're lingering for a purpose, a mission itself, or they're trying to find the right opportunity, um, or they're staging for, for a greater purpose. And so, you know, trying to understand that piece that, um, you know, where you don't just look at the initial intrusions, but you get a broader sense of what's happening within the environment, um, you still have a lot of opportunity to act um, and people shouldn't be discouraged just because they have been breached. They, there's a lot that can happen to make a great, you know, a, a huge problem much more manageable. 
So, Sandra, on a global scale, what are you seeing in terms of who is being targeted and why, and how has that changed in the past year? Well, really what we're seeing is a huge rise in ransomware. I was just talking to a Mandiant IR consultant who told me that half of what he's he's responding to right now is ransomware. And I think that there are two big reasons for that. Uh, the first one is it's simply a very lucrative business. People are paying. Uh, and, you know, I was uh, overseas in Europe when before uh, before COVID and everybody was traveling. And I remember addressing a crowd there and, you know, shocked because we had just responded to ransomware events where the, the ransom demand was in the hundreds of thousands of euros. Right. And a year later, now we're looking at tens of millions of dollars in ransom amounts. And that is just a staggering amount of money. And it's not just the money, it's the disruption and the extortion that comes with it. So we're seeing that threat actors will, will threaten to post and name and shame um, uh, organizations and victims. They'll dump their data in a site if they don't pay. And sometimes they'll dump it even if they do pay. Uh, so there's that piece of it. The other piece of it is that a lot of this ransomware as a service um, th these operators are renting, they're taking a, you know, a, 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 uh, a software, sort of a ransomware as a service approach. They don't have to have the, the access. They don't have to have the skill. They're actually able to partner with either a, an existing capability or they might have access that they can then lend to a, a, an entity that might have the right technology for the attack. So this is just becoming a national security issue, and I think that we have to put our full attention to it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And and as you think about that, though, what can an organization, you know, how does their risk mitigation change depending on what the actor wants? If it's ransomware for money or if it's information or they're trying to steal technology, does that change at all the controls and an organization can put in place or should put in place? I absolutely think that they should be thinking in terms of, you know, what are the crown jewels? What are we going to do if scenarios? And what I do recommend to, to our customers is don't let the first day of a ransomware event be the day that you decide how to approach these things, right? There's tabletop exercises that need to be done. You know, who's going to talk to the media? What do you have in place to deal with this? Um, who is most likely, you know, looking at your threat profile? What are you most likely to be targeted by? What are your peers getting targeted by? Do you, you know, have you run uh, validation against those controls, you know, your controls to see if those tactics would work? Do you detect those? Do you block those? You know, um, the other thing is, are your backups sound? Are, you know, do you have good network segmentation? We, we have, a, you know, I think the key with ransomware is when it comes are you going to be prepared? And, and think that that's unfortunately where we are now in the threat landscape, is that when it happens, are you prepared? Um, and who is most likely to be targeting you? One of the things we talk about a lot, Sandra, isn't just being prepared from a cyber standpoint, but also making sure you have current backups and that you've tested you can restore from those backups. Right. I can't emphasize that enough. Yeah, that is crucial. I mean, it's not a silver bullet in that we have seen that with post-intrusion techniques. Um, so basically, these um, these ransomware operators will conduct reconnaissance first, and sometimes they're looking for backups. We've seen that as well. So I think that it's, it's a layered response, 
but backups have to be part of that entire plan. Let's talk just for a moment as, as we wrap here about the attackers. You've used the phrase, and I love this phrase, by the way, bank robbers who are also spies. Who are some of the most prominent or concerning attackers on your radar and why? So I think that term was uh, when I was talking about APT-38, um, a North Korean threat actor that actually took the very sophisticated reconnaissance, you know, espionage type uh, yeah, uh, methods, uh, but instead of doing it for, you know, to, to gain, you know, avoid strategic surprise or for those, you know, lofty espionage uh, reasons, they were doing it so they could, they could rob banks, basically. Um, and at one point they were, you know, they were so prolific. I think we tracked 16 uh, campaigns at the same time. And, you know, over time, people started to recognize more of, you know, that these attempts, you know, they were very conspicuous, you know, very high dollar amounts, 10, 20 million dollars that were, you know, supposedly getting moved through the international banking system to a to an orphanage in South Korea or something. Uh, you know, eventually those things, they weren't actually that um, successful getting the money, um, to, you know, ultimately getting possession of the money, but they were for a very long time, very successful at extracting it. And one of the reasons was because they also were, um, you know, this is one of those threat actors that could could linger in an environment and be persistent there for years. They would learn such specific details. Who gets to approve these large amounts? Do they use a PDF file? Do they use a dot? Do they, what do they do? Um, and how do they do it? And what's that guy's nickname? I mean, these were, this is just, trade craft. And then once they extracted the money, they deployed destructive malware on the way out. And this is a, a group that I think was, you know, continues to be uh, active, but public disclosure of their activities, um, we believe has slowed them down quite a bit. Interesting. Well, this has been a great conversation. And I want to thank you for making the time to join. It's also a very busy time for all of us who are doing this type of work. Um, this has also been a really tumultuous and fairly painful year for many people around the world. So what? let's do some optimistic stuff. What progress have you seen and what things are you looking forward to in terms of deterring or stopping or minimizing the impact of cyber attacks and any takeaways you can offer to our listeners? You know, I think back and to when, you know, remember when DDoS was this sort of existential threat and then it was like banking Trojans and it was like there's all of these eras of techniques that we thought we could never solve. And then I wouldn't say they're solved, but we kind of found technology behaviors and process to mute them somewhat. And I think with things like ransomware, we're going to do the same thing. I've seen governments working together. I have seen a big interest in taking action against uh, specific areas. Microsoft has done amazing work in this area. And I think that's that kind of activity, that community type activity is going to uh, is going to do great things for us. And in terms of just COVID in general, I've you know, one thing I've been telling my my family is, you know, I bet that there are people who are never going to take for granted giving someone a hug again, being able to visit family members, um, you know, having somebody be able to come into your home for a meal 
all those simple pleasures that we probably didn't appreciate before, I think we're going to start appreciating a lot more when this is all over. I completely agree, and I'll, I'll close with a, with just a brief anecdote. Um, there's a group of um, Microsoft friends and colleagues who, uh, when we were on campus, always met for once a month for what they call pancake lunch. And every month they invited me because I, I know a lot of them, close to some of them. And I never made the time. I was always busy. It was in another building. I had meetings. It was hard. And someone posted about it. One of the folks that routinely um, attended posted about it on, on Twitter this week. And I thought to myself, gosh, I wish I had taken the time just once because I don't know when I'm going to have the time again to go sit with these folks and have you know a pancake lunch. It's just it's the little things that you take for granted and you're, quote unquote, too busy for. That's right. I think we're I think we're going to turn a corner on that. I think we're going to be a lot more appreciative. And that's good. You know, living grateful is a is a wonderful thing. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And thanks to the audience for listening. Thank you, Anne. So I really wanted Sandra Joyce to be a guest on this episode because she is so incredibly accomplished in threat intelligence and in election security in her role at Mandian, leading that team, which is one of the world-class teams in the organization. And I, I think, you know, um, just as a footnote to that, you know, Sandra is this amazingly accomplished professional. And I also don't think that many people think that there are women doing a lot of these very senior at the depth that she does it at. So it's just an added win. <laughs> My biggest takeaway from the episode I did with Sandra, and I think it was the point she really made at the end, which is it, we're overwhelmed by the attacks and we're overwhelmed by ransomware. And there's a little bit of doom and gloom in the industry. But she looked back on other things like DDoS. There was a point in time in the industry where we never thought we could solve for DDoS. And, you know, you don't ever solve completely for something, but we've actually put a lot of solutions in place that mitigate against it. We will get ahead of ransomware. It's just the point in time we're in right now is pretty ugly around it. You know, this has been a great season three of Afternoon Cyber Tea. We had uh, Brett Arsenault, Microsoft CISO, join us for National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. We had um, Lauren and, and Camille join us to talk about the Share the Mic in Cyber event, which is happening um, or happened on October the 23rd, um, which was just a great event for really elevating the profile of black cybersecurity professionals on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Um, it was great to talk to them. Um, one of the other highlights for me this season was the, was the episode we did with Jules Okafor. Uh, the feedback I've had on that episode, and it was, it was the description to me from so, a listener was that it was really humanizing. And it was one of those episodes that a lot of people could relate to. So I'm appreciative of all of the guests that we have on Afternoon Cyber Tea. It's been a great season three. Seasons one and two were exceptional. And I'm really looking forward to the things we're going to accomplish in season four. And join us next time on Afternoon Cyber Tea. We can use tech to build a stronger democracy and a fair economy. Really? Join me, Baratunde Thurston, on September 23rd and 24th for Unfinished Live, a convening of technologists, journalists, artists, and changemakers. You'll hear from Ethereum co-founder Gavin Wood, Glitch CEO Anil Dash, journalists Casey Newton and Anne Helen Peterson, and more. Go to live.unfinished.com for tickets and use the promo code LIVEAUDIO. At T-Mobile for Business, unconventional thinking means we see things differently so you can focus on what matters most. 
That's why we've become the leader in 5G, number one in customer satisfaction, and a partner who includes 5G in every plan. So you get it all. Unconventional thinking is better for business. Open Signal Awards T-Mobile as America's fastest 5G network USA. 5G user experience report July 2021. Capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. For J.D. Power 2020 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. This week on Uncovering Hidden Risks, we explore how you can use a cloud-native application protection platform to solve different challenges. Be sure to listen in and follow us at uncoveringhiddenrisks.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.